Bibles to Song of Songs, chapter 4. Song of Songs, chapter 4. What a wonderful praise song. That meant very much to me at a, a very important time in my life when I was making some decisions about what the Lord was going to do in my life. It means a great deal to me. Song of Songs, chapter 4. We're going to read our text and then we'll dive into our sermon. Song of Songs, chapter 4. And we'll be reading through chapter 5, verse 1. That's our natural textual division. And so... The man's love is expressed, and he says, How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats. We'll talk about that. <laughs> that have descended from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn ewes, that's sheep, which have come up from their washing, all of which bear twins, and not among them has lost her young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with rows of stones, on which are hung a thousand shields, all the round shields of the mighty men. Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies until the cool of the day, when the shadows flee away. I will go... My way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling, and there is no blemish in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. May you come with me from Lebanon. Journey down from the summit of Amana, from the summit of Sanir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. You have made my heart beat faster, my sister, my bride. You have made my heart beat faster with a single glance of your eyes, with a single strand of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than all kinds of spices. Your lips, my bride, drip honey. Honey and milk are under your tongue. And the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A rock garden locked, a spring sealed up. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, henna and nard plants, nard and saffron, calamu and cinnamon, with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, along with all the finest spices. You are a garden spring, a well of fresh water, and streams flowing from Lebanon. And now the lady responds, Awake, O north wind, and come, wind of the south, make my garden breathe out fragrance. Let its spices be wafted abroad. May my beloved come into his garden and eat its choice fruits. And he responds, the man says, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh along with my balsam. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. And now the chorus responds and says, eat, friends, drink, and imbibe deeply, O lovers. Song of Songs and the gift of sex in marriage. The gift of sex in marriage. Now, we're in the aircraft industry here in Wichita. My father retired, retired from Lockheed Georgia Company. And imagine, if you will, that one of your corporations was going to send you to a seminar somewhere to listen to an expert discuss the dangers of air travel and Perhaps this person was claiming to actually be an expert on air travel in general. And they're going to talk to you all about air travel and the complexities of air travel here in the United States. 
And for 45 minutes, this expert gives you a PowerPoint presentation. And all he has is things like this. May 25th, 1979, an engine detached from a DC-10 leaving Chicago O'Hare. 272 people are killed. He goes to his next slide. August 19th, 1980, 301 people die of smoke inhalation while still sitting on the tarmac on the runway in Saudi Arabia. March 20, he goes to another side. March 22nd, 1977, 583 people die when two planes hit each other on a runway. And he goes on for 45 minutes, and all he does is discuss these tragic air disasters. And he does that for 45 minutes, and yet the guy claims to be an expert in air travel. Well, he has not fairly represented air travel. What he's shown are the worst case scenarios and has overlooked the fact that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of flights that take off and land every day safely without a bit of problem other than you and I having to stand in line. Do you ever feel like a cattle when you fly southwestern? I just feel like I'm cattle going to the slaughter, going through the line. But other than that, it's safe. And so you would understand that a person who only talked about air crash accidents would give a distorted view of air travel. Does that make sense to you? They ignore the thousands and millions of flights that take off and land safely. I'm afraid that sometimes we as the church of Jesus Christ, and I'm not just talking about this congregation, I'm talking about Christians in general, we have conveyed that sort of message about sex, especially to young people. All we talked about are the dangers. If you do this, you'll die. If you do this, you'll get pregnant. If you do this, it's going to be bad. And we all, all we talk about are the negative messages. And sometimes people get the idea that the Bible only has negative things to say about sex. In fact... One uh, author, her name is Peggy Fletcher Stack. She's an author and journalist, and she writes for the Salt Lake Tribune. She wrote an article a few years ago that, that titled, What They Didn't Teach You About Sex in Sunday School. And she said something very interesting. She said, many people assume the Bible has just one message about sex. Don't do it. Well, actually, what you've just read in the Song of Songs, Chapter 4, what we read together you remember last week we had a wedding ceremony. Do you remember that? The, the groom comes in on his palanquin and we had the wedding ceremony. Well, what you're looking at this week is the consummation of the wedding. This is a summary of their honeymoon, and it's about sex. In fact, one of my favorite preachers, David Jeremiah, titled his sermon on Song of Songs chapter 4, What Does God say about sex or what does God think about sex? Danny Aiken, the president of Southeastern Seminary, titled his message on this passage, The Beauty and Blessing of Sex as God Planned It. And we're talking today about the gift of sex in marriage. And so what we're hoping today is to provide somewhat of a corrective to an overly negative message. As stated in the Colorado Statement on Biblical and Sexual Morality, this is what we believe. God's blessing rests on sexual intimacy only when it occurs within the boundaries of message. And so our text today is meant to offer a word of encouragement and perhaps a word of correction about overly negative messages. So we're going to start with this. They're on their honeymoon, and the first thing we learn is, again, affirmation of their spouse. So let me just tell you, one of the challenges of preaching through the Song of Songs is you have about eight chapters of the guy saying, you're awesome. And the girl says, no, you're awesome. He says, no, you're more awesome. She says, no, you're awesomer. I mean, and so it goes on like that for eight chapters. And we're right in the middle of that. And we've talked a lot about affirmation of your spouse throughout this sermon series. Well, we have it again here in verses one through seven. He is affirming her. And notice several different areas where he is affirming her. And I, we're going to talk about them, seven different areas where there's affirmation. But listen closely, something I think we need to get in our mind. 
There is nothing wrong with saying, I'm looking for someone that I find attractive. There's nothing wrong with that. But we need to, to approach such a thing with a bit of humility when we're single. So there were a couple of friends, Bob and Joe. Bob and Joe had gone to college together, Bob and Joe. And so Joe was married. Bob was still single. And Joe said, I've met a young lady at our church, and I want to set you up on a blind date with her. And Bob got a little nervous because he was like a lot of guys. He's hung up on appearances. And so Bob said, well, what if, I, what if I go to her house for this blind date, and I pick her up, and I get to the door, and she's ugly, and I think she's ugly? Joe said, no problem. All you have to do is just fake a heart attack. If you come to the door and you think she's unattractive, just go, ah, and fall on the porch and pretend to have a heart attack. So Bob goes to the house on the particular evening. The date has been arranged. He knocks on the door, and the young lady opens the door, and she is strikingly gorgeous. From the tip of her toes to the head of her, top of her head, she is lovely and beautiful. And Bob's mouth is just dropping open. He, he's trying to compose himself and gather himself and decide what he's supposed to say at this gorgeous creature who's met him at the door. And before he can say anything, she goes, ah, and falls down and has a heart attack. <laughs> We're probably not as hot as we think we are, is the point. So what we want to do is there's nothing wrong with saying, I want to find someone to whom I'm attracted and I feel attraction, but we need to keep that in perspective. And once we're married, there is a blessing of affirming your spouse. You see this over and over again. He affirms her beauty throughout this passage. Notice what happens. He affirms her eyes. Look at verse 1. He says, your eyes are like doves. Some suggest that she's wearing a veil, and so her eyes are kind of peeking out from behind the veil, and it looks almost like a, a cliff, if you will, and they're kind of back in the recesses of a cliff. Audrey Hepburn said this, the beauty of a woman must be seen through her eyes. That is the doorway to the heart, the place where her love resides. Victor Hugo said this, when a woman is talking to you, listen to what she says with her eyes. The point is he can look in her eyes and he can tell that she wants him and it's a beautiful thing. He says her eyes are beautiful. He talks about her hair. Now here comes the flock of goats. One of uh, Last Sunday after the service, one of the single men in the church came up to me and he said, you know, I went out with a girl a few years ago and I was going to try to impress her and I was going to use the Bible to do it. And I told her that her hair looked like a flock of goats and she didn't appreciate it, right? So he, he wasn't recommending that to the congregation. But you have to get the picture. Remember, the guy in this story is a shepherd, and so he's used to being out in the wilderness. So this, your hair is like a flock of goats. And over there, these goats are typically black and they're dark. And so you have to imagine off on the mountainside, he's imagining, uh, he can see a line of goats coming down the side of a mountain. Do you, and they're long black line of goats. And he's saying, your hair falls across your face, this long, dark hair. And it looks just I am awestruck. It's gorgeous like a flock of goats. And in his mind and in her mind, remember, she comes from a shepherdess outdoor background. So she gets it. She understands what he's saying. But he's affirming her hair. All I know about hair in marriage is this. Before marriage, every woman has long hair. And then as soon as they get married, they want to cut it off. Uh, guys, you know what I'm talking about? Every, they all want to go. Yes, some of you men are giving me an amen. But uh, when I married Lisa, big 80s hair was in. I thought it was awesome. But I'm constantly reminded it is not awesome anymore. But I still... <laughs> of course, hair can be a problem for guys. I'm a Baptist preacher. So I'm going to give you a word of warning. 
The last place you want to be in a windstorm is standing behind a bunch of Baptist preachers. You know why? Because they all grow it long on this side and comb it over, right? And if all that hair breaks loose in a windstorm, you're going to get whipped to death. I mean, it's an engineering marvel. My word. So I'm more secure than my Baptist brethren. I'm just proud of my losing it. Somebody said there's men have three hairstyles. Right parted, center parted, and departed. Well, that's what I am. That's departed. Well, then he talks about her teeth. Notice this. He compared her hair to goats. He's a shepherd. He's doing the best he can. Now he compares her teeth to sheep. Do you see that there? Your, your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn ewes or sheep. And the idea is that they're beautiful and they're white. And he says, your smile is just inviting. She has a lovely smile and he's affirming her. Then he talks about her lips. He says this, uh, verse 3, your lips are like a scarlet thread. They are red and they're lovely and he wants to kiss her lips. That's what he wants to do. They're inviting him to a kiss and just would point out to you that cosmetics are no modern invention. They've been around for a long time. Then he talks about her neck in verse 4. Your neck is like the Tower of David. We don't know for certain what this structure was, but apparently it was statuesque and tall and beautiful. And the idea is he's, he's comparing her and he's saying, listen, you're up. Your neck is uh, like this beautiful tower. It's statuesque and it's beautiful. And your posture and your bearing, everything about you just attracts me. Then he talks about also her wearing jewelry. I want to say just a word here. Did you notice this? He said, with two rows, your neck is like a tower of David, verse 4, with, two, with rows of stones on which are hung a thousand shields. So the idea is this layered necklace that she's wearing. I want to stop and say just a word. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Verses 9 through 15, Paul warns women about not letting your adornment only be that which is external and they're, they're hung up on the hair being plated and piled up and all this sort of thing. Without getting into all the background, in the first century Roman Empire, women were spending thousands of dollars on hairdos. They would weave gold into them. They had slaves in these royal house or these uh, households of the upper class that did nothing but fix the women's hair. He's addressing a particular a particular cultural problem in there in first timothy but if you read the song of songs and if you read other passages in the old testament it's clear that women are wearing uh are wearing jewelry i know some religious groups some christian groups very conservative where the women wear no no earrings and wear no necklaces and things like that and i appreciate where they're coming from but i think that's a bridge too far it's clear in the bible that tasteful use of jewelry is acceptable and so it's not something that a, a woman need avoid he talks about her neck. He talks about her lips. And then notice what else. Verse 5, very direct language. He talks about her breast. David Jeremiah, one of my favorite preachers, said this about this passage. He's commenting on Song of Songs 4, verse 5, which says, Your two breasts are like fawns. He said, Given the manner in which our culture has vulgarized sexuality by reducing it to a quest for body parts, this section is more delicate for today's readers. In that context... And what is at least possibly their wedding night, and I think it is their wedding night, the language is completely appropriate. Her breast had the grace and beauty that evoked tenderness like that produced by two fawns at play. He has kind and tasteful praise for her figure. And he's saying, your figure is graceful and beautiful. Our world is full of so much crude language about sex. Our world is full of so much vulgar and inappropriate uses of the terms uh, that are just so ungodly. 
One of the reasons I wanted to preach through the Song of Songs is in the last 10 to 15 years, there's been kind of a fad among some younger preachers of preaching through the Song of Songs. And some of them have used that as an opportunity to talk dirty in the pulpit. And I wanted to prove to myself and to a congregation and to my students at the school that you don't want to get dirtier than the Bible. And the reason the Bible uses restraint, if you notice, there's a lot of erotic overtones in the Song of Songs, but the fact is the Bible is reserved. It does use poetic language. And the idea is that we should be restrained in what we say and we should be restrained in how we talk about sex. It's a holy gift between a husband and wife. We shouldn't talk dirty about it. And there's nothing dirty about what's said here. This is a husband and a wife on their wedding night. And he says, you're beautiful in every way. Your grace and the form of your figure is attractive to me. It even goes on. He talks about her fragrance. And notice what he says about her fragrance. Uh, he says, um, he talks about that you so you're, come with me my, my, from Lebanon, my bride. May you come down with me from Lebanon, journey with me from the Mount of Amana. So he's comparing her from all these areas where these cedar trees would grow at and this beautiful smell. And then in verse 6, he says, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. And he's saying that you, your fragrance is attractive. And so this comparison of Lebanon, here's what's going on. Back in the day, it's hard to imagine today, but Lebanon was full of cedar trees. It's also almost been completely deforested today. And there's this lovely, fresh fragrance and aroma. And he's saying, come down there for me. You smell good. You know, there was a church father back 1600 years ago. You probably never heard of him. His name was Jerome He's very famous in academic circles for being one of the first guys to translate the Bible from Hebrew into Latin, directly from the Hebrew. But Jerome had some really quirky ideas about him. One of them is this. He said, well, Jesus has washed me from my sin, so I'm clean. Therefore, I'm never going to take another bath. And he didn't. Okay, yeah, that's gross. So let me just tell you, you need to take a bath. All right, it's, it's a good idea. One of the things I would point out from this passage is, when we are dating someone, we spend an inordinate amount of time trying to make ourselves presentable for them. And what I want to stress to all of us is that we always should put our best foot forward for our spouse. We should always continue to try to make ourselves presentable and put the best foot forward for them. That's what they do here. And he praises her. He affirms her. Can I tell you one of the things that embarrasses me? It embarrasses me when I'm in public and I hear a Christian couple, somebody, a husband or a wife, put their spouse down in public. That's embarrassing. Uh, it, it is it's dishonoring to your spouse to put them down. I want to affirm my spouse. You should have a desire to affirm your husband or affirm your wife. Listen carefully. If they're getting affirmation at home, they won't go looking for it somewhere else. Do you hear what I said? If they're getting affirmation at home, they won't go looking for it somewhere else. And you should never put your spouse down in public. In fact, if you want to affair-proof your marriage, one way you can affair-proof your marriage is always speak positively of your spouse in public. When I talk about Lisa in any public setting, I always want to talk about her in such a way that everyone listening knows there's only one woman in my heart and there's only room for one woman in my heart. That sh you should affirm your spouse. Affirm them over and over again. Don't make them go looking for it somewhere else. But not only is there affirmation, there is an invitation. He invites her to come away. We pick back up in verses 7 through 8. 
And there's an interesting word play in verse 8. There's an invitation to come away to the honeymoon. Would you look at verse 8? I have the New American Standard in front of me. And the New American Standard translates the Hebrew into English this way. Come with me from Lebanon. You see that little phrase, come with me, at the start of verse 8? Do you see it? Okay, in Hebrew, it's just two prepositional phrases. And he's saying to her, with me, with me. It's two prepositional phrases. With me, with me. I want you with me, with me, with me. And he's inviting her to come away. There, there should never stop being a desire to get away and be alone with your spouse. Come with me, with me. It's insistent. Now, this is also in verse 8, the first time he calls her his bride. This is why we think the wedding is being consumed consummated here. We've had the wedding ceremony at the end of chapter three. Now they're going to the honeymoon. He calls her his bride. And in five times, or excuse me, the word bride occurs six times in the Song of Songs, and they all come in five successive verses right here, verses eight, nine, 10, 11, and 12. And then the sixth time down in chapter five, verse one. And what you see here is he calls her his sister, his bride. Now stop right now. We get weirded out by the word sister there because we say, oh my goodness, is this some sort of incestuous relationship? No. Back in that day, this book was written about a thousand years before the time of Christ. The word sister was a term of intimacy. It didn't always literally mean my biological sister, but it's talking about a sense of intimacy. It's almost a playful term in the extra biblical literature from that era in the ancient Near East. So he's not saying that he married somebody from his family. It's a term of intimacy. And I would just tell you, uh, if you're going to be married today, you, and you're a Christian man, you, and you're, you follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you need to marry a woman who is your sister in Christ. You need to marry someone who is your sister in that intimate sort of way. And so there's this sense of intimacy that they share, that it's a spiritual intimacy. It's, it's different and than just some sort of crude sexual attraction. Then look at verse 9. The Hebrew of verse 9 is a bit ambiguous. It's hard to get our, our, our minds around it. But twice in verse 9, he uses a verb form of the word from heart. The, the word heart in Hebrew is a noun, but then here he uses heart as a verb. Notice what it says in verse 9. You've made my heart beat faster. The literal Hebrew is this. You have hearted me. That doesn't make sense, but he's saying you've hearted me. There's, you've inspired my emotions. You have caused my heart to beat faster and faster. I, I, I'm excited when I get around you. I'm enthusiastic to be with you. And it's a powerful word imagery. And she is basi he's basically saying you have captured my heart. And so there's an attraction based on intimacy. But then there's also an attraction based on character. Would you look down in verse 12? He says this, A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A garden locked. The theme of an enclosed garden here is a compliment to her character. She's a garden locked. Do you understand? A walled garden. Do you have the picture in your mind, a walled garden? Some of you kids have read that book, The Secret Garden with a big wall around it. That's kind of what you have the picture of here. And it's locked. And what he's saying is there's controlled access to her and she hasn't let anybody else in. Do you see what he's saying? You're a locked garden. You haven't let anyone else in. Let me just say, the Bible praises sexual virginity as a strong character trait. 
Some of you are trying to save yourself from marriage and this world's giving you grief and they're trying to tell you you're crazy. You are not crazy. It's the world that's broken. It's the world that's messed up. Don't you give in. God bless you for going God's way. God bless you. And the church wants to encourage you. And so he's saying you're a lo- it's, your character is outstanding. You're like a locked garden. You haven't carried yourself in a promiscuous way. And he praises her character. He praises her as someone that he can love because of who she is. Let me just say a quick word. I have to say something to single folks here. God bless single people in a Baptist church. Some of you have met every crazy third cousin in a four-state area. You are, some of the single folks are scared to death of being invited to dinner by some of you anymore. You know why? Because you invite the single person in church. And you know what happens, ladies? Can I just tell you what happens to Baptist ladies when they see a single person in church? You start singing that old hymn from Fiddler on the Roof. Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. Find me a fine, catch me a catch. And you're going to play matchmaker. Okay? All the single people have a message for you. Are you ready? In the name of Jesus, stop it. Okay? Stop. I, I don't know how many single people have told me stories like this. I got invited to somebody's dinner after uh, house for dinner after church on Sunday. And they said, oh, we're so glad you're here, Susan. We didn't tell you Fred was going to be here Fred's a nice guy he just got out of he just got out of the mental health facility after about four years stay and the judge says that thing on his ankle comes off in a month but it's really really good and so we want you to meet Fred okay listen to all the single folks I've got two words for you that you can use in a Baptist church when somebody starts all that stuff for you tell them two things are you ready first tell them Jesus was single okay if that doesn't work in a baptist church here's your trump card lottie moon was single all right that trumps everything just tell it and it's okay and i am too but you're looking for that someone special i've talked to folks that have gone through the internet dating world and it can be wow you never know what you're going to get sometimes those online profiles are a lie but let me tell you Wait for a person of character. You wait for someone that loves Jesus. You wait for someone God's got the best for you. Don't you settle for second best and don't let this world make you rush into a decision that you're going to regret years later. You wait for God's best. Don't you settle for this world's second best. Don't compromise your standards. So we see the invitation, but then finally we see the consummation. Verses 16 uh, through 5.1. And she invites him. So here in verse 16, the guy has been praising her in verses 1 through 15. Now in verse 16, she says to him, Awake, O north wind, come, wind to the south. May my garden breathe out fragrance. She's inviting him in to the wedding chamber. May he eat the choicest fruits. And this is actually, these two verses are the center of the Song of Songs. They form the exact middle of the Hebrew text. Circle that. Verses 16 of chapter 4 and chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 1 are the exact center of the Hebrew text. So there are 111 lines of Hebrew text before these two verses. There are 111 lines of Hebrew text after these two verses. They are the climax of this poem. Everything in the book of Song of Songs has been leading to this moment. And what we learn here is that sex is a holy secret between a husband and a wife. Notice what it says. It says in verse 1, I've come to my garden. Remember, he just called her the garden. He said, I've come in. They are having sexual intercourse and marriage. My sister, my bride, I've gathered my myrrh along with my balsam. I've eaten my honeycomb. I've drunk my wine and my milk. And then the chorus responds. The chorus responds, drink and imbibe deeply. It says basically become intoxicated with each other. 
I want to point out something to you here, though. Do you see the restrained language? It's not vulgar. It's talking about marriage. It's talking about a honeymoon. It's talking about a consummation of a marriage. There is a man, his name was Kinlaw. He was the president of Asbury College. He was an evangelical Methodist. And he says something that I like very much about chapter 5, verse 1. Commenting on this verse, he said, The language here used of love's consummation is classic in its chasteness, a character possibly possible only through the use of symbolic language. The beauty of its expression fits the holiest of all human relationships. Metaphor plays the same role here as the veil in the temple. Sinful man needs to protect the mystery. What a tender thought. Can I point out something to you? Do you see what's happening? In the temple, the veil separated the holy place from the holy of holies. You remember that? The veil. And so the veil kept anybody from just looking in at the Ark of the Covenant. There was a veil there. And this dear Methodist brother points out something about this passage, that there is a veil of holiness over what goes on in the wedding room. He says it's, it's an area of mystery. And just as the veil separated the holy of holies from everything else, there should be a holy veil over the wedding room. Listen, I have counseled tons of couples. I've talked to people from every background, religiously, ethically, and socioeconomically. This generation has a problem of telling everybody too much of their business. So you listen to the preacher. What goes on in your bedroom, in your wedding, is between you, your husband, your wife, and Jesus, and the rest of the world doesn't need to know about it. And you need to keep a veil of holiness over it. Because let me tell you what this world does. The world takes that holy gift of sex between a husband and wife and gets on a fast, they get on a rocket ship ride to the gutter with it. And you, it is none of their business. You hear me? There's a holy veil. And the, the restrained language here is exactly right. Just as there was a veil that separated the holy of holies, there should be a veil over sex in marriage. But then notice what happens. There's public accountability. At the end of chapter 5, verse 1, the chorus breaks in. This chorus that's in the song. And they say, eat, friends, drink, and imbibe deeply, lovers. It's saying being intoxicated with love. What I would point out to you is everybody else knows there has been a change in their status. Everybody else knows that their relationship, this husband, this wife, when, listen, when you get married, your relationship to everybody else on the face of planet Earth changes. It's different now. Listen, guys, you listen to the preacher. When you get married, you don't have any more girlfriends you go hang out with. Ladies, when you get married, you don't have any more guy friends you hang out with. Your relationship to everybody on the face of planet Earth has changed. You are now in a covenant with one man and one woman. Listen, I have been married for 30 years, and I have never told Lisa, Lisa, do you remember that hairdresser I went out when I was 19? You say, you went out with a hairdresser when you were 19. This is my sermon. This is not your sermon. But uh, when, you remember that girl you went out? You remember that girl I went out with? You know, she's coming through Kansas City. We're going to go down to Applebee's and hang out, and we're just going to have a dinner together. But it's okay. You can trust me. We're just friends. I wouldn't insult my wife that way. Why? Because when I married her, my relationship with every other woman on the face of planet Earth changed. And it's never the same. Some of y'all need to grow up. We're not talking about going to the prom. You have entered into a covenant before a holy God. It's a holy thing. You got to mature. There is public accountability. You don't go hanging out with other people. You don't have all these Facebook friends. You just tell all your stuff to, well, I'm having problems in my marriage. You start telling some woman and you start telling some guy. And next thing you know, what started out emotionally, you're all hooked up with them. 
You got to grow up and mature. There is a time, ladies, when the girl has to sit down and the woman has to stand up. Guys, there's a time when the boy has to sit down and the man has to stand up. And when you take a covenant with someone, God takes it seriously. There's public accountability. Well, what is the purpose for sex in marriage? There are seven of them. I'm going to move very quickly. Why did God give us? What are the purposes of sex in marriage? First, it's procreation. God wants us to, to have babies. Genesis 1, 26 through 28, be fruitful and multiply. Doesn't mean you have to have as many babies as you possibly can. I realize that for some people, there is the, there is the unrequited sorrow of infertility. We understand that. The Bible talks about that. It talks about infertility. We understand that. But barring medical problems related to infertility out of all our control, just living in a, a fallen world where sometimes things are frustrated, the point is we should, it is an expectation that Christian couples are going to have children. Secondly, part of that is dominion over the earth. God gave us the gift of sex in marriage that we can have children, but part of that is so that these kids can have dominion over the earth. As soon as he says, be fruitful and multiply in Genesis 1:27, the next verse, 28, he says, have dominion over the earth. One of the ways we exercise dominion is through having children and um, exercising God's authority over the earth that comes through sex and marriage third is shameless intimacy Genesis 2 24 and 25 says this for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined into his wife and they will become one flesh both the man and his wife were naked yet felt no shame sex is a time of complete openness and oneness with your spouse but our culture inverts the order do you notice in genesis 2 24 through 25 you leave your father and mother you cleave into your spouse we learned last week those two words are covenant terms you establish a covenant then the two become one flesh then they're naked and not ashamed our culture gets it all backwards our culture says go get naked with someone go have sex with them and find out which one you think fits you best and then try to establish a covenant and you are inverting god's order and it never works when you try to do things the way God says don't do it so but it is shameless intimacy there's a time for openness fourth is comfort an overlooked per passage in the Bible is Genesis 24 67 and so Isaac has married Rebecca and his Isaac's mother has died in Genesis 24 67 the word of God says this then Isaac brought her that's Rebecca into his mother Sarah's tent he brings her into the wedding room and he took Rebekah and she became his wife and he loved her and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. What a tender statement. Through the arms of love and sexual intercourse with his wife, he finds comfort as he grieves his mother's death. Fifth is relaxation and play. And we've been reading the entire Song of Songs about that. But God has given the gift of sex and marriage that a husband and wife might enjoy and have a time of fun enjoyment with each other. Six, it is a way to celebrate love in marriage. We've already talked about this in Song of Songs 4, 16 through 5 and 1. It's intended to be an expression of love between a husband and wife. One man put it this way, God gave the gift of sex in part as a means of showing our love, receiving love from our spouse, and mutually nourishing this love bond together. So it is a time to celebrate love with one another. In fact, the Apostle Paul warns couples about extended, uh, extended periods of abstinence unless by mutual consent in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And then finally, God gave us sex as a form of protection against sexual immorality. Look what he says in 1 Corinthians 7 2. Paul speaking, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. 
A happy love life at home can be a tremendous antidote to sexual immorality. Why did God give us the gift of sex in marriage? We've seen several reasons here. But let me talk to you about something more deeply than this. And it is what we have tried to stress throughout this sermon series. Sex was never designed to be the center of your marriage. God did not design it that way. It is a component. It's an aspect. It has several purposes, all of which are good under God's plans. But if you try to make sex the center of your marriage and the center of your life, you know what the Bible calls that? Idolatry. You're worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And, if you, and our culture is trying to get you to buy that lie that everything begins and ends with sex. Everything does not begin and end with sex. Everything begins and ends with the God who made the universe. And listen, some of you have been trying to use God's gift of sex in the way the designer never intended it. And you have been beating your head against the wall morally and spiritually for years, if not decades. And at some point, you got to ask yourself, you know, maybe God knows more than I do. And maybe I need to do things God's way. And I'm pleading with you today to make a commitment to go God's way. If you're married... There's purposes for this in marriage. But listen, your marriage will never, ever find a strong enough foundation in sex alone. The only place you're going to find a foundation for marriage is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've got to know Jesus and pray to Jesus because I cannot stress this enough. When you get married and you make that covenant, you've got one fallen sinner making a covenant with another fallen sinner. Your spouse is going to let you down. Listen carefully. Jesus never fails. He's perfect. He's tempted in all ways just as we are, yet without sin. And your strong marriage starts at the foot of the cross. It starts at an empty tomb. It starts in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I want every head bowed and every eye closed. No one looking up, looking around. Our musicians are going to come. We're going to have our invitation. It's our time for you, an opportunity for you to respond to God's word this morning. So listen carefully. I want to talk to a couple of groups of people. And the musicians are going to go ahead and begin playing. And we're about to have our appeal. So listen carefully. I ask that no one be leaving here for just a moment. Listen carefully. First, there's some single folks here today. And you've got to make some decisions. And I'm not asking you to come forward. But right now in your heart, there's an hour of decision for you. Some You say, listen, I've trusted Christ as my Lord and Savior. I believed and I prayed a prayer and I've asked Jesus in my heart. Okay. Have you given your sexual ethic to God and said, God, I know now why you gave that gift. I know where it's supposed to be used. And I'm asking you to give me the strength to go your way. And I understand the temptations are strong. So what we're asking is in your own heart right now, begin to pray to God, dear God, I give my sexual ethics to you. And God, I surrender my reign and rule in this area of my life. I lay it down at the foot of the cross. And dear God, as you give me strength, I'm going to live under the Lordship of Christ in this area. I'm not asking you to come forward. I'm asking you right now where you're at, in your heart. God, I give it to you. A couple other groups of people need to talk to you. Some of you have never been saved. There's somebody here who's never given your life to Christ and you've been beating your head against the wall trying to do it your way. Aren't you tired? Aren't you worn out? Aren't you exhausted? 
Why not give your life to Christ today? Brother Chris and Brother Andy and Ryan, my wife, others are here. Come forward and take my hand. Say, Brother, I'm tired of doing it my way. I want Jesus. And let these men and women pray with you and you can have Christ in your life. Some of you know this is, listen, the sweet couple of single adults, a widow and a widower this morning, shared with you the importance of a church family. And there's some families here today and you've been guessing and wondering about you need to get plugged into a local church you've been saved you've been baptized but you're living in wichita you've not connected your family your marriage into a local church and today you need to plant yourself at emmanuel baptist church as this church reaches christ and you need christian friends to come around you and encourage you in your marriage and this is the day for you it's the day for you to unite with this church so i'm going to pray and after i pray they're going to sing while they're singing If you need to be saved, you come. While they're singing, if this is a church, God, your your marriage needs to be planted here, you come. Father, I'm praying in the name of Jesus Christ for men and women to be saved. I'm praying for teenagers to be saved. I pray that even this morning that people have been surrendering their sexual ethics to you and they're giving it to, to Jesus and they're laying it down at the foot of the cross. And I pray for husbands and wives that need to plant their lives in this church as this church tries to touch Wichita for Jesus. So God, I'm praying they'll be faithful to you and obey you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we stand, you come. While they're singing, you come right now. It was a Wednesday night at Awana. And I was thinking that if God gave me all this stuff and I get to go here every week and that he will keep me safe from natural disasters, that night... When I was in bed before I went to sleep, I prayed to God and said that I believe in you and you are my Lord and Savior. And the church said, then I knew I wanted to be baptized. I love coming to Emmanuel. I don't have a favorite verse, but I like that God knew me before I was born and that he knows my future. The verse I do like is this, Jeremiah 1.5. I chose you before you were born. I formed you in the womb. I set you apart to me before you were born. This is Abraham's testimony. Brother Mark. Well, church, I have my friend Abraham with me today. And it's an exciting day for him to celebrate what God has done in his life. And so this morning, we'll be baptizing him. If you agree to be praying for him and support him in his decision, would you please stand at this time as he is baptized? So Abraham, I ask you, have you accepted Jesus as your Lord and the Savior? Yes. Awesome, awesome. Well, I baptize you now in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life.